Welcome to Peeling the Onion Podcast with Cheryl Passwater and Nancy Campbell, where we have real conversations about what it takes to dive deep into the unique journey of healing. Health is not a win-lose game. Join us and our amazing guests to explore the layers of physical, mental, and spiritual health. So grab a drink, go for a walk, get cozy, and let's peel the onion. Today I'm... And cut. Today on Peeling the Onion Podcast, we have Amy Spindle. Um, now, guys, real talk. I might be a little partial. Amy is a friend. She is a fellow microbiome fermentation, functional medicine nerd. Um, but also I have the luxury of working for this beautiful beast of a lady. Um, but I hope that you love today's episode because we are talking about preconception, conception. Birth, pregnancy, afterbirth, papas, mamas, everything in between, your microbe, nutrition, breastfeeding, getting those little kiddos well-nourished, healing those guts, all the good things um, that we love. So whether you are planning to have kids, currently have kids, working on having kids, know someone who has kids, share this episode because what we have to say today and what Amy has to share is um, pretty darn magical. Um, Amy Spindle is a functional holistic nutritionist with a mission to help moms and their kids develop strong and healthy guts so they are well-nourished and grow up without digestive distress. She applies multidisciplinary approach to her work exploring and supporting the body, mind, and spirit to determine and then provide recommendations around rebalancing the root causes and digestive and other health issues. She received her master's in holistic nutrition from Hawthorne University with additional training from the School for Applied Functional Medicine and holds a master's in social work from Columbia University. She is board certified in holistic nutrition and applied functional medicine certifications with additional certifications in safe dietary supplement use gluten-free practice in the culinary arts and counseling. Amy owns Food With Thought Nutrition, a functional and holistic nutrition health coaching practice in Plano, Texas. She additionally works for the clinical education team at the School for Applied Functional Medicine, helping to train other practitioners in functional medicine, and is the staff nutritionist for Phoebe, a virtual support platform for pregnant and postpartum mamas. Amy enjoys gardening, spending time with her family, traveling, playing board games, and the flute, creating ferments, and studying about the wondrous world of gut microbes. Thank you, Amy, for being here. Amy Spindle, welcome to Peeling the Onion Podcast. We are so excited to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Yay. Welcome, Amy. I think we should, I think, call ladies like you doers. You are racked with an amazing resume, which we've already shared with our listeners, and um, it's just a history of your education and your background. Um, will you tell us more about your practice and your background and, and, and the work that you do? Yeah, sure. I'd love to have that opportunity. Thank you. Um, so I started out my career actually as a licensed clinical social worker providing mental health services and burned out really fast and thought it would be a fun thing to go to culinary school. And that was a super eye-opening experience for me because I didn't realize just what the average American was eating. 
Um, you know, I get there expecting that we're going to be making all of these dishes from scratch and they have the soup base, which is MSG and a whole host of stuff I couldn't pronounce and all of these other ingredients. Um, and I quickly started thinking about, huh, this must be what I'm eating when I go out to eat <laughs> and wasn't so comfortable with it. And I fell in love with the nutrition course that I had to take as part of my culinary program. Um, fast forward a little bit, I ended up working in a pastry kitchen and I was producing tons and tons of truffles every day. And it was just exhausting. And I wasn't feeling super great about providing my local community with gobs and gobs of sugar, but that's where I had just spent all of this time and money investing into my training. Um, my son was then born and lo and behold, he was allergic to gluten, dairy, soy, corn, eggs, and citrus. And I was committed to breastfeeding and we had a massive elimination diet. And when you're on that kind of elimination diet, you can't exactly work in a pastry kitchen. It just is not compatible. Um, so I had to really rethink this whole career thing. And his food allergies weren't going away. We were working the pediatrician who wasn't of much help. He was running all these fancy tests and we really weren't getting the answers or the direction that I was needing. Um, up until about age two and a half, he was waking up four to eight times a night. So nobody was sleeping during this whole time. Um, I ended up with pretty bad postpartum. And really just trying to get my life together ended me up in nutrition school because if the doctor couldn't figure it out, well, who's a better detective than a mom who's determined to fix her child? So went back to school, did a master's program in nutrition and got a ton of tools under my belt. Also figured out how to get my son taken care of at the same time. Um, I wasn't quite ready to do it fully yet, but figured out what kind of support I needed to enlist in. And lo and behold, he started sleeping. He started tolerating more foods. He didn't need as many restrictions. We continued our breastfeeding relationship until we decided we were done. So we had a happy ending. It was just a lot of work getting there. Um, and I saw just with him what was missing in our own community that moms like me were needing, you know, just being on Facebook message groups and seeing so many moms struggling and suffering, and it didn't need to be that way. And I opened up a practice a few years into my nutrition program and then linked up with an applied functional medicine program as I was finishing out my nutrition program and really developed a, a toolbox to help people with gut issues, people with food sensitivity and allergy issues, and all kinds of other issues that come along for the ride with those. Um, and that's really what's led me to my practice today. So right now I serve adults and children. I've actually become very heavy in the pediatric population, especially infants uh, within the last year or so, just based on who my referral partners have been and, and the, the help that I've been able to support these families with so that they can reach their goals um, and, and really just help their children out so that they're not suffering as long as my son had to suffer. Yeah. Is the vast majority of your population walking in your door because their children share some of the same issues as, as your son had? So, okay. So mostly al yeah. allergies and food, food issues. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's, it's with the older kids, it's a lot of food issues or, um, immune systems are really just not handling kind of what the world is throwing at them. So the kids are just chronically sick or having a lot of, like we said, food reactions, um, poor gut health, constipation is a pretty frequent one or diarrhea. Um, and then when we drill down and look at the diets, you know, there becomes these patterns that just aren't supporting optimal health. And then with the babies, a lot of the babies just had early antibiotic exposure or mom had antibiotic exposure in utero. And, you know, there's a time and a place for antibiotics for sure. 
Um, and what's wonderful is that once we pinpoint the issues, we can help to get these kiddos back on track and their guts start to develop where we want them to develop and, and achieve the health that they're wanting to have. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. You bring Do up you. Go ahead, Cheryl. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, well, you know, you bring up, I think something that we, you know, talk about a lot on peeling the onion, which is the microbiome. You know, like not just, you know, our gut health, but our just our general exposure um, to microbes. And, you know, again, that antibiotic exposure and toxin exposure and, you know, all these other sort of elements. Um, It's really such a fundamental thing. It is. And, you know, that's where I see a lot of things going off the rails for these kiddos. In my area, I'm down in, in Texas in the Dallas area. Um, the hospital rates for C-sections float between 30 and 40%, whereas um, more of the natural birth communities around 3 to 6%, depending on the midwife. So, you know, thinking about all of these kiddos that have gone through C-section birth or hospital birth, and, you know, like I said, some, this is what needs to happen. You know, it's just, there's an emergency, there's an urgent situation. Others, it's not necessarily that way. And we just have to consider, okay, you know, the, the microbiome has been adjusted based on the birth experience and what might we need to support that in order for that baby to achieve more of an optimal health. So, so let's just pretend that I'm, I'm a pregnant woman. Um, actually, you know what? Let's back up. Let, let's pretend I'm trying to get pregnant. Can we start there? And, you know, I've been trying for eight months um, I am hesitant to jump right into IVF and I know in my gut that something needs to shift, that my body could find some equilibrium, hopefully to get pregnant. Um, and you know, my husband's done the sperm analysis. He's okay. Um, you know, I've done, I've run basic hormone testing and, and, you know, my ovarian reserve and all, you know, all those things are doing are generally normal, but we're just hitting a wall. Um, and, and I'm thinking, I'm going to go see Amy because I hear she's a specialist and she helps families. Um, but, you know, can you help us think through, help me think through, what, how would you help me get ready for this major event to take place in my body and have an ease, easeful time getting pregnant and, and to carry my baby to term? Yeah, I really appreciate that question. And I think the preparation is so important. And I also think it's important to keep in mind, it's a continuum of time. So it's not just the time leading up to conception. It's not just the time during the actual pregnancy. It's not just the time during the actual birth. It's also, you know, if mom is choosing to breastfeed that length of time as well, that might be six weeks, that might be three, four years. So really thinking through what does mom need to do to prepare her body? so that she's not being depleted and is able to keep giving and giving and giving with some additional supports. So whenever I'm working um, preconception with clients, it's such a fun time because we can really dig deeply and do the work that needs to be done without worrying too much about, you know, definitely, you know, not wanting to harm a baby once in utero, but thinking about the diet, thinking about cleaning up the diet, supporting the microbiome, because that microbiome is going to be passed on. I mean, I was shocked when I ran my son's first stool test and then I ran mine not far after. He must've been about 18 months old. And I could see <laughs> the, the organisms that weren't supposed to be there, those pathogenic bacteria that weren't supposed to be there that were likely wreaking havoc and causing some of his issues. So preconception is a wonderful time to really think about the gut microbiome and how we're feeding it, making sure that we are focused on lots of whole real foods, lots of foods that are going to feed the gut microbes in the way that we want, right? So lots of vegetables, lots of color, 
lots of fruits, um, making really careful decisions about the toxins that might come alongside the foods that we're eating. So when we're able to, um, at least with some of the more chemical containing uh, foods, making sure that we're choosing organic, um, thinking the same for animal proteins, thinking the same for you know even dairy products that might come along or, or fish that might come along and, and choosing as low mercury as we're able to. Um, choosing good quality nuts and seeds, um, but not, not letting that be a massive part of the diet. So I really like to see food logs for people so that I can help to understand where's the balance. You know, are we getting enough seafood where we're getting enough iodine in that we can support healthy thyroid, support healthy pregnancy, support good brain development? Um, and this is especially of interest, I think, to more of the vegan and vegetarians that might not be eating fish, right? What, what other seafoods like um, seaweed can we get into the diet to really ensure these micronutrients? Um, making sure that we have enough good fats in the diet. You know, there's a whole generation, my generation of fear phobic, uh, excuse me, fat phobic people and really worried about eating dietary fat. Well, we need that. We need that to build our stores so that we can feed and nourish our baby later. Um, and we talked a little bit about toxicity, but, you know, also cleaning up our water, our drinking water, our showering water, so that we are not pulling in a whole bunch of toxins that, you know, can then impact how conception goes, how the egg quality may look. And for some people, that's a big piece of why they can't get pregnant is just the egg quality is really struggling because of the toxicity that, that they've endured over their lifetime. So for some people, that's where we need to start is really just looking at what this toxin burden looks like, cleaning up their personal care products, their hygiene products, their house cleaning products, especially in the laundry room and in the kitchen. Um, and really just also thinking about, okay, are you drinking enough water where you can clear out the toxins? Are you getting enough nutrients so that you can clear out the toxins? And I'm not talking do a whole big dump detox. I mean, just on a day-to-day basis, are you clearing out what you're bringing in and then clearing out what the cells might be doing? Um, so, you know, these are, these are all important factors to consider. And then stress is something that I always incorporate into my work as well. Just helping people to moderate their stress. The stress isn't going away, but how are we interpreting it? How are we understanding the stress in our lives? How are we responding to it and really operating from there? So those tend to be the three big areas that I support people around just preconception. Yeah. Can you give us a, a sense of, and I know everybody's different, Amy, but give us a sense for timeline leading up to that. So I think this is really important for people to be aware about because I actually like for people to be done doing all of that prep work a minimum of three months prior to trying to conceive and optimally six months trying to conceive. So really this, you know, depending on the work that needs to be done, dietary changes can be done pretty quickly for somebody who's really motivated and has the resources and is responding really well to coaching and taking in in the suggestions and getting the ground, you know, getting, getting on the ground running. But for somebody who maybe has a huge toxic burden in their body, be it metals or mold or even chronic um, illnesses or microbes, you know, doing the gut rebalancing as well, that could take six months to a year. And for some people who are really, really struggling, it may take longer. So I do like to be upfront about that. It is a commitment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you find this true for people who are trying to conceive naturally, but also maybe getting ready for some sort of reproductive assistance? Yeah. Because that egg quality is so critical. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Don't. And, you know, they, they say it takes about three months to turn over eggs, you know, to have a higher quality once you're ready to get going. So 
That's why I really like to give people that three to six month buffer of, okay, now we're done doing the work. Now you go and relax and get into the mindset of, hey, here's the work I'm about to embark on because it's it's a long journey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, want, I want everybody to hear that though, who's listening and just, especially if you're out there trying to get pregnant and really struggling, is that you are not stuck with your egg quality. Mm-mm. There's such a issue. You walk into your gynecologist's office, you, you have your blood work done, you, you kind of, or you, you maybe go through one round of IVF and, and nothing, no eggs become embryos and you're feeling really lost. Just know that you're, this is not a forever game. This is not where you have to sit. The change exactly. can absolutely happen. Yeah. Thank you exactly, for clarifying exactly. that. What happens if you have a whoopsie? Like real talk for a second. Like yeah. you're this you're the person who <laughs> like you you had the whoopsie and all of a sudden you're like, okay, I've got this little nugget growing. I have found myself in this scenario. <laughs> Whoops. And then you're like, well shit, I didn't do any of this preconception anything. Mm-hmm. What what next, Amy? Like what it happens all the time. And I forget what the stats are. Is it like 50% is unplanned, something like that? I mean, it, it, it's up there. I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. But I think that's a perfect opportunity then. You realize it once you get over the, oh my God, kind of moment to really just take inventory. What are the lifestyle choices? What are the behaviors? You know, we're not going to start a big full-on detox, you know, in the middle of a pregnancy, but we can filter our water. We can choose organic where possible. We can clean up the quality of our animal proteins that we're eating. We can rebalance our diet. We can feed the gut microbiome. You know, we can really work on on all of these smaller pieces, make sure that nutrients are in place. Um, You know, I do a lot of work postpartum just in preventing postpartum mental health issues. And big piece of that, and this was my own experience too, is just the nutrients weren't in place during pregnancy and mom just continues to get more and more depleted. So you know, thinking ahead, if we can curtail any any of those components during the pregnancy by ensuring that the nutrients are good, then let's do it. You know, let's do what we can with the tools that we have available in a very safe way. Stress management's another one. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. I was going to say, can we talk about having nutrients in place to help better a postpartum experience? And I, And to be honest, the level of depletion postpartum, I, people, we do not talk about this as a society. It is so intense. I breastfed my kid until she was four years old. We had a great relationship. It was awesome. But let me tell you, six months postpartum, a year postpartum, even two years postpartum, I was stretched. And I didn't feel completely in balance probably until she was three or four, to be honest. Um, and so even if I was going to try to have a second kid, I don't think my body was in so much, you know, stress and duress, fight or flight, because I wasn't able to kind of reacclimate the way I needed to. But, you know, everybody's story is different. But we're not talking about it, what it takes to create a human, right? What what the toll is on us. And then, you know, if we decide to breastfeed and are able to breastfeed, what's required of us? <laughs> and then we're not, and then add in the fact that like you now are caring for this little creature who needs you in the beginning, 24-7. Um, and not everybody has, has round-the-clock support. So, um, Anyway, I just want to, I also want to have a little real talk here because we, we certainly don't 
talk about what that looks like. Can can you elaborate a little bit from your viewpoint? And, and even if you have a case study, obviously we won't mention anyone's name, but if there's anybody like it just in particular that you think would be a great example to kind of walk us through what this looks like and, and things that you could do to prevent. Yeah. I mean, I can even use myself as the case study because that's, you know, <laughs> most close to my experience <laughs> for sure. Um, and looking back, that's what was going on. Um, so I think there were a lot of questions built into what you just said, Nancy, and, you know, kind of thinking through what this might look like here, what I would encourage doing during pregnancy is one, do a food log so that you can really be real with yourself about where there might be some shortcomings and really take that into inventory. And I see hydration as a huge problem and I see protein as a huge problem. Um, The B vitamins are a huge problem for people. Zinc is a huge one. And I see that a lot also postpartum. We can talk about that later, but, and then magnesium is another one. And these are all also associated with mental health status. So for me going through my pregnancy, I was a recovering vegetarian. I did not have my diet dialed in. Remember this was pre all of my nutrition training. I thought I was just being healthy by eating my vegetarian food and maybe bringing in a little bit of chicken at that point, but nothing to write home about. I know looking back that my protein was woefully inadequate and all of my B vitamins were inadequate and I had some genetic stuff going on, but I just wasn't getting exposure to what I needed. And a food log could have really helped with that. Um, I also love running micronutrient panels on certain clients and definitely in this population because then we can see really quickly, okay, you know, it might look like this on your food log, but is it really getting into where we need it to get into? And if not, how do we support, you know, your taking all this B12, is it the right form for you? Is it getting into your cells where we would need it to, to really support your mental health and all of the other wonderful things that B12 does? So it becomes a really nice tool to try to stab off postpartum issues. Um, I think expectations are another big piece of it. So thinking about, you know, going to go, you're going to have this great baby, then what? My husband and I had the baby. We got home within... See, I delivered at 12.30 in the afternoon. We were at a birth center. I was home by 5 p.m. And we just kind of looked at each other and my son was early and we weren't expecting that. And we looked at each other like, now what? Like, what do we do? Like, I have no plan for food. I have no plan for, you know, other than there's a bag of diapers up here. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) Figure it out. But then also after that, you know, how do you make sure that your mental health is supported? How do you make sure that the food is supported? Um, how do you know that you're getting good quality meals? You know, supporting all these relationships. I started struggling with depression, anxiety pretty early on postpartum and was not getting myself fed. Um, you know, I would struggle into the kitchen by like 11, 30, 12 o'clock in the afternoon and like pour myself a bowl of cereal. Now that doesn't have the B vitamins that I need or the magnesium that I need or the zinc that I need or the protein that I need. And then I'm breastfeeding on top of it. And then the stress from all of that is burning through nutrients. So it's really important, I think, to continue monitoring and making sure that mom feels supported, that the supports go into place ahead of time so that there is a plan for food. There is a plan for nourishment. People know what's happening. They know where they can get help. They you know, know who they can rely on or call in a pinch and, and just ask for that help and that the plan is already set ahead of time. 
No, I was just going to comment about the whole idea of just asking for help, um, you know, ask, building a community. And even if you don't have one locally, like if you don't know your neighbors, um, if you're new to where you live, there's so many ways and ideas of how to get food to someone virtually these days. And we all survived the pandemic, a lot of us, with <laughs> grocery delivery and meal delivery uh, when we were scared to go into stores in the very beginning, right? So those are ways that we can certainly help people and don't underestimate estimate if you have a friend who's pregnant, especially someone who is delivered early, to just get food to the door. Don't, don't even wait for them to ask. Make it freezeable so they can put it in the freezer and get ready. But certainly, um, but also, you know, having real talk, I, I wish gynecologists and like, or just OBGYNs would actually be more clear in, the, in, our, in our effort potentially as a society to increase rates of successful breastfeeding and long-term breastfeeding to help people understand the what is required is not magic it it needs caloric intake you have to be hydrated you need enough fat um and it it's it, it can be complicated just 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 in the physiological aspect of breastfeeding not to mention making enough milk how do you help new moms like navigate that what's your, what are your educational tools and tips do you have anything that you direct them towards yeah so i actually have been working lately with a few really wonderful lactation consultants and we've gotten into the groove where they are assessing for the structural reasons why the baby might be having some issues and then if the structural issues are resolving but the baby's still either having trouble nursing and their guts are still off or mom is having trouble making enough milk, then I get the referral because then it becomes more about the functional medicine and nutrition piece. So then we're assessing, you know, what might be going on for mom where she's doing all the things and she's doing all the right things. Why are things still off? Um, and I think this can be where there's a huge disconnect then from the postpartum care directly over to, for the moms who are even lucky enough to find themselves in the lactation consultant's office because so many give up before that. Um, you know, a lot of times we see hormone imbalances. I can't tell you how many times I have seen thyroid imbalances that have run under the radar. And once we support the thyroid, and it may just be as, as simple as getting more iodine into the diet or getting protein better digested and reducing stress levels. You know, when, once the thyroid gets in, uh, back to balance, then look, they have more milk. Or it may be a matter of, you know, the nutrition is just so off the rails. Um, we have seen cases where mom is drinking less than a full eight ounces of water a day. She needs to output about a quart of breast milk a day once the baby is you know, a few months old. So even just doing the math numbers, it doesn't add up there. You know, that could be a huge one. Um, you know, back to thinking about hormones, insulin resistance is another large problem that can create milk supply issues. And, you know, think about how many moms get diagnosed with gestational diabetes, or they just had high blood sugar running through their pregnancy. And, you know, maybe it was kind of under the radar. It didn't quite hit the mark for gestational diabetes, but was still an issue. And it still remains an issue postpartum for a lot of people. So that tends to fly under the radar too. And that's, that's often, not always, but often a fairly easy solve, just tweaking the diet and making sure the right nutrients are involved and stress management, providing those pieces. Mm -hmm. How does gestational diabetes affect milk production? So with any kind of diabetes, whether it be gestational or type one or two diabetes, um, or there's other forms as well. When the blood sugar rises, insulin rises, and this impacts the whole hormonal cascade 
um, just via prolactin, via inflammation. And I'm grossly oversimplifying here, but we do see that, that connection between elevated insulin and poor milk supply. Yeah. Mm. It reminds me of one of my favorite books. Uh, it's called um, The Fourth Trimester by uh, Kimberly Ann Johnson. And just that, you know, like, you know, Nancy was saying, it's like that lack of postpartum, you know, care that we don't think about. Like there's a whole other trimester of stuff that happens after we, after you give birth, you know, and I think for, you know, also real solutions, like if you're somebody listening to this podcast and maybe you're, you know, a friend or a spouse or a whoever, a person, you know, um, setting up a meal train or, you know, making a big batch of congee or bone broth or, you know, things that, you know, are easy for us to do to help set up the people around us. And also, you know, really bringing back, like making time for parents to bond with their babies and making time for the body to recover and to heal. And, you know, after this big, long, you know, journey that you go through, which is making a baby and having a baby. And yeah. Yeah. You know, I appreciate that, Cheryl. And, you know, just to compare, so my son is now nine and I have a seven month old at home too. And yes, there's a reason (laughs) there's that gap because I was so exhausted and I wanted it to be different this time around. And it was, you know, I was really able to stay on top of the nutrition during pregnancy and it wasn't an easy pregnancy, but, you know, just having those foundational nutritional support involved and the hydration support and the expectations and the knowing what it could be like and the preparation for that fourth trimester was massive. Um, last time, you know, I didn't think we needed help. Huh? <laughs> what did I know? Right. This time we hired somebody and I had her in and she was wonderful. You know, she came maybe about 85 hours over the three months postpartum for that fourth trimester. And it was such a game changer, just knowing that she was going to be walking in the door and the dishes were going to get done. Or so that I could sit with the baby and feed her and I didn't have to, you know, struggle with it. Or knowing that if I set a recipe and some ingredients out, I would have food for the next three days. It was just huge. It wasn't the bowl of cereal, you know, as a last resort at 12 o'clock. Yeah. So. No, that is huge. And I, I hired a postpartum doula. Um, I had a C-section, a planned C-section because I had, to, had had too many surgeries, unfortunately, on my uterus uh, leading up to my pregnancy with my daughter. And um they were just, it was too risky. And so anyway, that being said, I didn't need a birth doula. I needed a postpartum support. And I really didn't know that a postpartum doula existed. Um, but she also was a lactation consultant. It was this wonderful little package and she would scramble Magical. eggs. Yes. And it was a gift. People put into a gift certificate. That was part of what I needed. I we had covered the clothing and the crib and the stroller and all the things through family, thankfully. And um, my girlfriends just all pitched in. It was an option. So it was it was just such a wonderful thing. So again, you know, we, we cannot raise or have babies in isolation. It takes a village and certainly asking people for support and knowing that it's out there. Um, businesses like my own, actually, just I, I have a, a weekly meal delivery service and, you know, can certainly support families. Um, who have special dietary needs in that sense too. So I totally get it. Um, it is a been a huge benefit to have extra support. So that being said, being prepared um, and knowing what you need is huge. Um, 
So once baby comes, Amy, in your practice and uh, babies reach three months and six months, and when when is it that you normally are starting? When is it the if let's just take breastfeeding for instance, we can start we can start with a, a woman who's breastfeeding, and then maybe think about a woman who ha, who has to go to formula, or even starting to supplement with formula. Um, what are you seeing as signs of of allergies early on in that stage? And then I would love to talk about the process of introducing solids. Yeah, sure. Um, so it really kind of depends, and it may not be true allergies; it may just be food sensitivities, or it may be intolerances, and We'll kind of see the range. I've seen some babies just not wanting to nurse as robustly as they might otherwise, um, or just some milk refusal. Um, some babies have colic. Some babies have reflux or might be, quote unquote, happy spitters. Um, some babies get rashes, eczema, um, congestion, things like that. So it, it really can range the gamut. Yeah. And sometimes we'll see the issues present pretty quickly after a feed. Um, my son, I knew I was exposed to corn because he would just projectile vomit within minutes of my eating it if he were to feed right afterwards. Um, so some babies react quickly. Some babies have more of the skin stuff, which may take a little bit longer to materialize or other symptoms may take a little bit longer to materialize. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then um, once we introduce solids to a, a baby's diet, um, and for some people that ranges, you know, there's the baby led weaning route and there's, you know, rice cereals and, and pureed foods, but, um, let's, can you walk us through some of the recommendations and maybe even a case study of people who you're working with, um, in your, your practice of navigating like the elimination diet or strategies with, with kids? It can be tricky. It can be tricky. And especially for the breastfed mom or the breastfeeding mom, the diet needs to be similar as that of the kiddo. So if mom knows that kiddo is reacting to something, then she needs to take it out of her diet as well. There's actually a decent body of literature building that can show that the foods that the baby's reacting to are transmitted through the breast milk before they even start solids. So I think it's really important for moms to just be educated on that so that they could choose what they would like to do. Um, but certainly, you know, if baby's reacting to something like milk or to peanuts, mom needs to pull it out of her diet first and foremost too. And then just in terms of the journey towards starting solids, I really suggest for babies to start at least after six months. And it really depends on the baby in my practice and where we've kind of jumped in to what they're needing support around. So if there's a baby that's having a lot of gut issues and we really need to do some serious microbiome work, maybe there were multiple gut pathogen infections already, maybe body, baby was hospitalized Maybe um, there's a lot of antibiotic exposure already going on. Let's say baby happens to be six months at that point. I will usually recommend that we take a couple of months to just really work on the microbiome and rebalance it. Because once solids start to come in, then the microbiome is going to immediately start to shift around the solids. Um, if we think about the microbiome as being very responsive to what is coming in, and we think about you know breast milk, for example, Breast milk contains a lot of food for very specific microbiome strains. And then there becomes this whole domino progression within the microbiome of what strains become more predominant next and how does the pH shift and how does the flora shift then based on all of these progressions that again, all started with that breast milk. 
So when we then start to think about pulling in solids, is the baby's gut in a position where we would want to continue shifting it? Or should we pause and try to go back and do some of the restoration work to get it a little bit closer to where it might be better on track from, you know, month two, month three, month four, something like that, even though the baby at that point is a few months older. Um, so that will depend. And, you know, thinking too, I have some mamas who just have a lot of malabsorption and the milk coming from mom, if mom isn't eating it, mom isn't getting it. There's a handful of nutrients that mom just doesn't have a store of. Um, so baby won't be getting those either. So that's going to also help to guide me on, you know, what do these first foods look like and what, what the delivery format of those first foods are for something like baby led weaning, baby's not going to be eating a ton of those foods. If baby's not, if baby's getting what it needs to from mom's milk, because mom's milk is really nutrient replete, then we have more of a buffer with the baby led weaning. We don't need to rely on those for solids to really get digested and processed through because a lot of the food that goes for baby led weaning, baby is not eating and digesting very well, and we will see it on the other end. If it's something more like a puree, it's already mashed up, it's already ground up, it's likely already cooked. Baby is going to be able to pull that in more easily and do something with it more easily. So for these kiddos with a lot of gut damage where the parents are starting solids, we may start with some of the purees just to get easily assimilation, to get those nutrients better on board. What are you seeing, I guess, question is you know, at that older stage of six months to eight months, what's what's leading you to say, we need to keep doing some gut restoration? Well, it depends on what the symptoms are that they're coming sure. in with. Typically, once they've seen the lactation consultant and they're doing all of the things that they need to do physically, they are between about five and six months by the time they do get into my doors. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we look at, okay, you know, what's going on here? I do like to run a stool test when necessary. So that maybe if we really can't pinpoint what's going on or if there again has been multiple hits to the gut and, you know, there's been a lot of infections and the baby's been very symptomatic and the baby's struggling to grow, then I will use that opportunity to run a stool test and okay. really just see what microorganisms might be there. What do we expect based on an infant gut? What do we not expect based on an infant gut? Um, sometimes we can get a lot of really quick, easy data that allows us to then more customly choose probiotic strains or choose what those first foods might look like. Well, and I think, you know, Amy, you bring up a good point, which is, you know, that microbiome exposure. And, you know, I, I think it really, for me, brings up, um, you know, like we all have different kinds of birth scenarios, right? I mean, you know, whether that's you were able to breastfeed, maybe you weren't able to breastfeed, or maybe you were, you know, unfortunately discouraged from doing that, you know, in a hospital setting or whatever the scenario might be, whether that's been you had a cesarean section or a natural birth or, you know, drugs, there's a million choices and things experiences, yeah. and experiences out there. Um, but, you know, we've, and we talk about this a lot on the show, which is, you know, we have to be exposed to microbes, you know, and it's, and it's funny when I got into learning about the microbiome and studying the microbiome and, you know, getting into fermentation, you know, even 15, 16 years ago, it was still considered quackery. There's like, we're really just starting to un kind of unearth and scrape um, the surface of um, just how important um, those early microbes are. And just because somebody has, you know, whether you've hit, gotten to hit all the nails on the head 
or there are things that you haven't, or you were dealt a poor hand with your own microbiome going into coming into the world. I definitely was in that kind of scenario. Um, you know, it, it's all of this is about optimizing and strengthening, giving us all the best experience and, you know, chance at, you know, good health. And, um, you know, I hope, you know, the conversation, you know, also inspires people, right? That it's not about judgment or it's not about anything else, but that we have to start talking about it. We have to start talking about early exposure and, you know, toxins and glyphosate and lack of microbes and, you know, all these things, big picture. Um, because, you know, I, th- I think if you ask anybody, they want to have a healthy kid. Yeah. And, and they want to get pregnant easily. I mean, I think that's also the aspect of it. I mean, there's so much infertility out there. It's, it's almost mm-hmm. like an epidemic at this point. It is. Um, there, there actually yeah. is an epidemic of infertility. I mean, the birth rates yeah. are way down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's challenging. Our Western culture, um, especially, and as the West influences the East, right, in terms of our diet and um, our, our influence. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a huge risk. And I think it's just not understanding how absorptive our bodies are. <laughs> yeah, and I appreciate what Cheryl, you were saying too, because I think it's not about entering the world in a perfect state, right? It's it's about optimizing what can be optimized, but we also have to consider our children are not healthy. Life expectancy for our children this generation is lower than our own generation. Something's going on. And if we can optimize you know, the child's first thousand days, which starts in utero, and continues through to about the second birthday or so, if we can optimize their gut health within those first thousand days, they're going to be in a much better place. And some kiddos are going to need it more than others. You know, it's just the hand that they were dealt or the situation or things that may have happened to them as a tiny, tiny. But regardless of what it is, you know, we can still optimize it. We can still adjust it. And the research just continues to explode in this area. So I feel very fortunate that these kiddos do have a really wonderful fighting chance of having things shift. And I would love to see the life expectancy go back up. I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking to think that the kids that we're bringing into this world are not predicted to live as long as us. Absolutely. So what would we say also, because we've left out like a little subset of people, which are the papas and the dads and the gentlemen and the young men, whether you're single, whether you're partner, whether you're other, um, because they are the other the other piece to this puzzle. Like, can we just touch on that for a minute or two? Yeah. I mean, I don't want them to think they have a free card. It's not just about <laughs> the conception, right? The microbiome can actually transfer within the household. So it's really important for dads to have great gut health going into conception also, um, and to really have great sperm quality. I mean, they are having a toxin epidemic. Sperm counts are very, very low in the general population right now. It's a huge issue. And think about, okay, the counts are low. What is the odds ratio now of getting a really good quality one to meet the egg? You know, you're, you don't have as much variation in choice within the batch that comes out. So we need to be thinking about that because we want to create the best possible quality embryo, the least possible genetic issues, the least possible problems growing up, whatever that may look like, you know, we all want that healthy, healthy child. And, you know, I think too, just dads changing their eating habits to support mom, you know, if everybody in the household can have a clean diet 
it's going to be that much easier than when baby's born to encourage baby to have a clean diet. Baby sees what people are eating. If, you know, the parents are eating, I don't know, Chick-fil-A, McDonald's, <laughs> nothing about having these things occasionally. But if that becomes the only food choices and then you expect baby's going to sit there and eat her green beans and her liver is not happening. <laughs> so it really needs to happen at a family level. You know, the, the dads are just as important in setting the tone for nutritional status in the household as the moms are. And dads are important in, in supporting, you know, the third trimester if dad can help cook and dad can help with the expectations that this is not going to be a picnic. <laughs> this is going to be a, a hard time. And, you know, can we support the feedings? And if you're not doing the actual feedings, how can you support mom during those feedings? Does she need a snack? Does she need water? Does she need food? Does she need a break? Does she need a shower? You know, does she need to walk outside? What might that be to just get her through? So definitely an, an important part of the equation from beginning to to present so and i was like this goes yeah. for same sex couples too like yeah. like leaning yeah. into your partners <laughs> i had to have this conversation i had a conversation uh, with a client recently who you know is in a same sex relationship and it, you know and we had this exact conversation like just because x y and z like does not exempt you from boop 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 and what does this look like and who's the primary caretaker of this of the baby and, you know, like all these different, you know, factors. And, and that was just even through the lens of like adoption. There's a reason why traditional cultures live more in multi-generational families and why in some traditional cultures, the mom or the mother-in-law comes and moves in <laughs> for a few weeks at the beginning and, and, you know, stays involved in different ways. But it, it's, I, I really have to give people who do the single parent thing a crazy amount of credit because I can't do it. I couldn't do it. And, and they're doing it. And I am just so amazed because children and just all that they need. And then all that we need is, is unique, separate individuals. It's a lot for one person to provide. It is a lot. It is a lot. And I, I, I mean, hats off. I mean, I, I, we got hit with a stomach bug when Lucia, our daughter was, I don't know, two or three. And as soon as she stopped vomiting, Greg started vomiting. As soon as Greg started vomiting, I started vomiting. But it, had we all been vomiting at the same time, oh, Lord help us. And I don't know who would have, I mean, who do you invite into your house when you say, oh, I'm sorry, we're all vom profusely vomiting. Will you please come take care of us? Oh, so, and, and you can't leave the two-year-old alone <laughs> to fend for herself. And so, oh God bless um, all those single parents out there. I tell you, you're, you were doing an, a massive service um, to raise great kids and to keep and, and to stay sane. It is a certain skill for sure. Um, but I wanted to mention, um, thinking about your social worker hat, Amy, and, and the stress that you might not intentionally, <laughs> certainly, but add to somebody's life as you're saying to them, I'm so sorry, but all of your favorite foods have to be removed. Everybody needs to readjust their diet. I know you're Greek, Pakistani, Korean, uh, just good old mid Midwestern American, whatever our cultural background is, right? <laughs> Southern. <laughs> um, you're going to have to tell your family that those those foods aren't okay anymore and for the foreseeable future. Um, 
I know families who don't even do a meal train because it's so stressful to tell, you know, grandma and Aunt Elaine and all the people that I can't have a casserole anymore. I'm so sorry, but the cream of mushroom soup has to stay out or what. And that doesn't make any sense to them. It's not Aunt Elaine's fault. It's not grandma's fault. It's just that that's how they cook. So I guess what I'm asking is like, how did you, how did your social worker hat come on and and support these mamas and dadas who have to navigate <laughs> an already stressful situation? How do you support them? What do you tell them to, how do you help them set boundaries and ask for what they need? Yeah, it's really hard. It really is hard. So a lot of empathy for sure. And, you know, I've been through it and I know lots of families have been through it. Um, you know, just thinking about an elimination diet, unless there's a true allergy, I tell people that they have some time to get the food out. And we can do it in layers. And maybe that's what makes the most sense in the early postpartum period because it can just be so overwhelming. It's already an overwhelmed system, especially with lack of sleep and just so many needs and demands and crying. And it, it's so difficult. Um, but, you know, in terms of asking what people need, instead of saying, I need something gluten-free, it might be saying, hey, could you just go get a pack of chicken breasts and just throw it in the oven for me? And could you just go get a head of broccoli? It's already pre-washed in the bag over there. Could you just toss that in at the same time? Like just very, very clear specifics so that the family feels like they're meeting their loved one's needs and are doing it in the way that the family is needing it to be done. And then everybody's feeling good about it. Now, there always will be some people that insist on bringing the lasagna and that just doesn't work and just being very gracious about it and thanking them and moving on. You know, maybe somebody else will eat that food, but... You know, just, just being really upfront about what's needed and what I'm seeing now too, you know, it's for better or worse after the pandemic, but like you said, with the grocery delivery, all of that, I'm seeing a lot of people just giving gift cards, gift cards to Uber Eats or um, any of those other online kind of delivery platforms or, you know, gift cards to the grocery stores and the family's able to choose, you know, what might be useful for them. Um, and, you know, also thinking about is there a high school kid that might be able to come in for a few hours after school or on the weekends and just do some really easy cooking? You know, the, the family doesn't need a gourmet meal. Maybe the family just needs, you know, some potatoes cut up or some rice made to get some starches in, uh, you know, sweet potatoes, things like that, root veggies. Maybe they just need a bunch of vegetables cut up and steamed. Maybe they just need a few soups made and here's a really easy recipe and we have some canned beans ready to go. And, you know, I already had the butcher cut up the chicken for you and could you just dump all this into a pot for me? And then they're fed for the week. And maybe it's, you know, three, four hours of prep from this high school kid. So it's not a huge investment there, but, but just to get some kind of help or, you know, high school kid coming in to just fold some laundry. I mean, the laundry gets ridiculous <laughs> or to wash some dishes or play with the other kid. <laughs> or play with the other kid. Yeah. The, the poor left out <laughs> older siblings. <laughs> I had a friend who um, had a baby recently and they did like a meal, a meal train, but on the meal train was um, twice a week, having somebody sign up for a slot to come over and just help with home things. So whether that was some food prep or folding laundry or, you know what I mean? And they, and they did it for like, over like 16 weeks and like all of us took, a, everybody took a meal and then we all took a time that we came by and we just did, you know, hung out for an hour or two, did some tasks. They needed an errand run, whatever. And it, it worked so well, you know, and it's like, and for those people who feel like, you know, I can't afford a postpartum this or that, or I can't, 
You know, like look at, be creative in your solutions. Look at something like that because we all need and deserve, um, you know, this sort of support, right? I, I even thinking about older, the, the older generation who may not have grandchildren in town or children in town who want to pick up some extra work, um, who need a little extra cash. To, you know, it, high school is a great idea, but sometimes, you know, maybe you you would trust a, like an older person more. Um, so that's another idea. But I love that meal train idea, Cheryl. That's that's brilliant. And also, guess what? You get to come in and see the baby when normally you don't maybe feel so comfortable to ask. <laughs> you just have to, you get to show up and see the baby. That's exciting. Yeah. And I love that too, Cheryl, because people focus so much on what the baby is needing that they're not focused on the parents and what the parents are needing. So... I had a friend a couple years ago, she had her baby and she just had a baby who had like colic and would just cry, cry, cry. And her husband had to go out of town for work and she was, you know, like just losing her mind a little bit. And I was like, so I'm going to come over tonight and I'm going to be your night nurse. And she was like, you've lost your mind. I was like, no, you have got to sleep. Like you have got to sleep. Like, yeah. You know, it's like, you know what? Yes, I want to sit here and hold your baby and everything. But I was like, I'm also your friend. I'm <laughs> showing up for you as a friend, you know? So like went over, showed up at like, you know, nine, 10 o'clock, made her some sleepy tea, was like, go to bed. <laughs> I got this. And I, you know, I night I moonlit that night, you know, until about five, six in the morning and brought her baby to her once to nurse in the middle of the night took the baby back in the other room, gave her some earphones and was like, earplugs. And was just like, go sleep. Like you have to, she was going to lose her mind. It is. And that's part of that mental health piece is you really can just get pushed over the edge. So it's important to have friends like that. It is. It is. Well, I think we have certainly covered the gamut. Um, I think if you're if you're out there, um, potential mom, potential dad, uh, looking to get pregnant, thinking things through, or even you're a new parent grappling with cr- some, you know, skin issues, digestive issues, um, don't don't think that this is just normal necessarily. It's worth just encouraging. Um, your partner or just pushing yourself out the door to try to find somebody out there to help you like Amy, um, whether you want to work with her remotely. Um, I assume, Amy, that that folks can work with you remotely. Is that true? Thank you. Yes. We provide one-on-one remote services. And also I am working right now on getting some e-courses out the door too, so that they'll be more accessible to people as well. That's great to hear. Awesome. Well, we all need access to this information if if we're trying to conceive, if we're you know, dealing with young kiddos. So thank you so much for the work that you do. Um, Certainly this piece of education and and helping us kind of break the generational cycles of like, oh, babies just spit up. Oh, it's going to be fine. Let's just put on this old cream that we've been using forever. Let's just keep eating. Let's just wait it out. Let's just eat the same foods that we've always been eating. Let's start questioning things and start to realize that we don't have to have such a hard road. So thank you. So Amy, we have a book club and we would love, do you have a recommendation, a favorite book, a gem, something that you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think for the parents that are struggling with digestion, not quite necessarily ready to 
seek out some professional supports just yet. I really, really love a book called Digestive Wellness for Children, and it's by Liz Lipsky, who is a gut expert in the functional medicine field. And it can be a really nice jumping off point to take a bit of an inventory as to what might be going on that's producing the symptoms and see if there might be some easy home remedies to solve for them at home. Liz Lipsky is a former professor of mine. So that's a great recommendation. I love that. I love it too. That's a great book. I I have that book and I love it. And then where can people find you, Amy? How can people work with you? How can they contact you? Thank you. Everything is just on my website, foodwiththoughtnutrition.com. And from there, you can request to get more information about one-on-ones and book a quick 15 minute with me to see if we're a good fit. And once my e-course is launched, um, be able to register for those as well. I have one coming up on preventing postpartum depression and anxiety. I'm really, really excited for, and Cheryl's going to be helping me out with that. And another e-course coming out on uh, solving for some of these issues in breastfed babies. Great. Can't wait to, to, to check all of those out, Amy. Thank you so much. That's awesome. It has been a pleasure to have you on Peeling the Onion. Thank you again for filling us all with the next you know, step in in our own unique layers and sorting through all the navigational issues that we might have with our health. So thank you again. And guys, yeah, you're certainly welcome. So what do we say, Cheryl? Keep healing in and babies. Keep peeling the onion. Have a good day. Bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Peeling the Onion Podcast. If we've inspired you to take the next step in your healing journey, please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can also find us on Instagram and online at peelingtheonionpodcast.com. Music by Greg DeJazu and podcast production by Nova Media. Until next time, keep peeling the onion.